Warning. This issue of Nil Desperandum is rated R for strong language and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Nil Desperandum 8 Dioscuri by Edward Morris Part 2 Dizzy Chicken Town Blues Optic Lama X-ray Stroke 6 Sierra Echo Spectacle Mount Microcorder Function Key Audio Only Owner Dizzy Fulmer Birth Name Delta One Stroke Norman Ivan Bravo No Data No Data No Public bathrooms are supposed to be safe to a child. What could ever happen there? Public bathrooms occupy their own corner of space-time, their own cosm that gets examined as little as possible by anyone. When you're four years old, public bathrooms are mysterious and terrifying, with vast horoscope machines looming over you, their funhouse mirrors at your eye level inlaid in the bakelite where grown-ups don't notice. There are curtain closets in those bathrooms, and back rooms behind them where janitors smoke dope. There are ancient cigarette machines there sometimes, too, holding up the wall. I remember how scared I was of public bathrooms even then. I remember not knowing why. My twin brother, the one I dream about sometimes. He doesn't know that we're telepaths. What we feel, everyone feels. What we touch... We understand better than anyone can. It doesn't always work on other people. Sometimes we cause riots, breakups, pets going bonkers. No one knew we would have our father's abilities. Even Jeep thought it would skip a generation, when he beat off in the batter and made the two toughest cookies I know. I know. I know. I'm so glad I know about all this now. I can hide out here from Jeep until the end of time. But that won't solve anything. I have to think. I have to remember. Everything I can. To do what I think I'm about to do when I stop. Picture, if you will. You're in the toy aisle. Heaven to a kid. Or at least to me. Back then. Back when there was still such a concept to me as a toy aisle. Then all of a sudden you're yanked without flash or fanfare into this vast, dripping corridor full of ghosts and the smell of layers on layers of shit. That kind of vague wall of shit smell that you get from everyone who's ever been there. Ever. Frighteningly anonymous. Like all any of us leave behind, all smells the same in the end, and I can feel them all. I can feel them all. Not just everybody who ever died in that public bathroom. Not everybody who ever fucked in there either is what I could feel. Nor every argument or conversation, syringe full of heroin or joint of sticky Mexican green bud. No. Just plain old everybody. I felt all the ghosts in the mall bathroom that day. Even from back before when it was something else. And back. And back. And back again. I sensed. I saw. From way down low. Back, 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 in the back of the janitor's closet, whose lock looked smashed open, there was a heater-shaped hole in the wall. In that hole, a very diminutive, homeless-looking head, one that would belong to a person roughly two feet in height, poked out around a hastily hung trash bag curtain, saw me at a level with his eyes, 
and lay a finger upside his nose. Shh! Outside my stall door, through the crack in it and far away to the right, Dad was standing at the backmost urinal, blithely taking a piss. I remember giggling. The head retreated. I remember moving forward, probably to pull the shopping bag curtain and see if I really saw what I saw. Then, I saw my big dopey dad with his wispy mustache, with his glasses so thick I tried them on one time and fell over. Dad with the weird scabs on the inside of his elbows that he wiped with alcohol sometimes from a big bottle. Dad sliding the whole way down on the sharpened spoon handle shank being shoved into his chest and twisted by a big, bald, tattooed thing, a toothless, green-eyed monster who's like Dad already taught me to say. Hexer cotton-mouthed speed freak tweaker. I saw the Hexer monster emptying Dad's pockets as he bled out. I understood. I just knew that this creature was cunning, baffling and powerful, and far too big for small me to ever, ever possibly fight back. So I hopped up on the toilet, having just done my business and zipped my pants up. Never needed much supervision there. And I waited. And I waited. Nobody came in. It seemed like I waited a while. I couldn't hear anyone moving. When I was scared, I couldn't tell what people were feeling. Then, or send my feelings into them. None of that. Public bathrooms are supposed to be safe. What could ever happen there? The bug-eyed, toothless, hairless reptile, lips, nails, and the whites of his eyes as green as vertigus, kicks open your stall door, whips down your little pants, and starts to do something absolutely unspeakable until you bite the dad thing on him, the way you bit that bully's face when he wouldn't quit it. You hit with your bony little fists and kick with your hard little boots, but mostly you bite. You bite. Your teeth click together and you bite. And you bite. The monster is screaming so very loudly, bucking to get away. But something in you is turned over and you can't let go and there's no more dad. No more dad. This monster. I remember the security guard kicking in the stall door. The crackle of his wraparound ear-mounted radio headpiece with the monocle over his right eye blipping red as he called it in. Miller, I need a friendly cop down here right now, along with you, a general manager, and a big fat roll of that yellow tape. Now, code red, 187, purpose. Then he really saw what he was looking at, past my dad's prone, inert body and all that blood. All that blood. Never knew there was that much blood anywhere. He saw a six-foot-six hexer screaming like a four-year-old boy, and a four-year-old boy with blood on his teeth, kicking the big man in the face, the eyes, spitting on him, howling like a wild thing. Perp is non-combative, but get here fast! Mall security! The guard announced, pointing an old taser at the head I presently stopped kicking. He looked at me. His lower lip was trembling. Stand down, son. You did real good. That's it. At, at ease. You... He addressed the big bald creature, who was clutching his groin. Blood trickled through his fingers onto the filthy tile. His bat addressed the hexer first, right in the guts. I clapped and cheered. The man who killed my foster father went down and didn't look very much like he wanted up. Then the guard bellowed into the man's face. You just got smoked by a kid, Chester. You're going to Wapto. The real thin weirdo in his ill-fitting uniform and redock faux-cop hat like some great black plastic loaf creature stood and took a step back, just as a hatchet-faced MPD sergeant. I could read the nameplate on his flak jacket, Mason, 
stormed in with the whimpering general manager in tow. But there would still be no more dad either. The road began, and no one much stopped me. Until I stopped now, only to slap in a fresh battery again. Click record again. I hear Doc is doing the same. I got eyes and ears in the street. Lao Tzu said you can know the whole world without leaving your house. He really cleaned up, my brother Doc did. My good brother Doc. Proud of him. I see in my deepest dreams that he's going to kill our dad when the old woman finds us away up onto the hill to let out the newer ones like us. The ones who never get parents. But these are only dreams. I don't know all of what they mean. Record, damn it. May 16, 2079. Recording. As ever, freestyle is the whole point. To take the rickety stage at some fire stripper club out in the middle of Chicken Town, and then the whole front row throws beer bottles at my head and says, We know what you meant. Now get the fuck off the stage. Hump. I'm up. I'm walking. Well, I'm sitting. Sipping coffee. Got some this week. There's that. Fine time to be out of the way. Listening to every kind of news at once. To get the clearest picture between the words. Poet I am and poet I stay. And the streets of occupied Portland run raw with the literature of the age. For any bard sharp enough to catch it. There are times when this is a very exciting thing. Times when the greatest art is produced. The greatest stories lived. When everyone who's around can remember exactly where they are and when they are. When the next big shift in the next big age of the world happens. And oh, I hope something bigger shifts profoundly in the very near future. While the whales beach and the seas leech. The bards out here are old alcoholics. With flowers bound round their walking sticks and bites taken from the brims of their hats. They carry their homes on their backs like tortoises. Yowling the divine comedy non-stop from smooth mouths. I sing with them, and write out the one big song that those old dudes are all tuned into. I can smell the frost fading back to dew, from my little hole where you can hear the wind singing to itself for miles and watch the shadow of every cloud a long way out over land. I choose to return to Chickentown, back to a place of innocence. Now I have to choose a direction. I shiver, still picking dreams out of my eyes. This kind of cold weather, today feels like downtown cold. Like living at the beer hole, some old hotel, very tall. There were glass elevators, plugged with plywood and the cars on the bottom floor made into sleeping quarters. The doors wrenched open with crowbars or torn off entirely. I had a lot of great moments there. Moments like a drink after a bad scare, or a smoke after a bad day, or a bowl after a good orgasm. Not like I even remember what that's like. This morning feels and smells congruent to the dawn chorus at the beer hole, out on the roof of that reconverted housing project turned squat next to Central Branch Station on the downtown line of the Springwater, way up high where you can see how they preserved most of the old public library. I hung out on rooftops like that a lot when I was a street poet downtown. Gilded roofs, commissioned by ancient corporate royalty, split into by the wet metal brushes of artisans. For years, all I knew was downtown. Tall building after endless creaking, crumbling tall building, entirely given over to squatters. The homelessness rate is obscene. On every wall there are gang and band graffiti layers deep. Asian, Bantu, something called a fushnikin. In my head, the handwriting on those walls tumbles down the years the wrong way, 
to the Hall of Justice downtown, or the labor camps in Malala. Every beer hole Johnson I know about is sober, in jail, married, or worse, and me still out on that long, lonesome highway in pursuit of a destination. The foundation of the beer hole hotel was cracked, and the rest of the building was just about as bad. Most of the damage was either flamed or contained. As long as there were three walls, a roof, and part of a floor, people were trying to live in the room. I remember. Mine wasn't bad. Much. Portland still stuck the way it was years ago when the secession hit. The locals go to their graves asking how anyone could let this world happen the way it is now. In the blasted flat districts where the sun goes on strike. Where the sewer workers and linemen move slower and slower each day. Each week. Each month. Each shift. Yet the city can still support preserved ruins when it wants to. Crowding them with people up under the mossy overhangs of expensive boondoggles dead one century since. I remember the cooking smells up in those little gingerbread pueblos next door above the beer hole, the smoke of black hash and the boom of djembe drums. It's hard to think about the bad old days. I remember the smell of the mossy tile in the beer hole, the rotted, dripping shower rooms that would never work. I remember what it was like to come into that place from the cold and have an army of dirty squatters sharing their beer their fire, their drugs, their blankets, and their bedbug spray. I had friends on the front lines of the culture war. They understood. I liked it there, no matter what. I even liked the derelict tenants living in the trash culverts under the lot, all mad, mad ghosts sweeping the dust behind their phantom feet, burning the city's past for warmth. I could taste their cook fire smoke from my window, mixing with the pale, cold mothballs and cigarettes smelled of my room. Downtown drove me nuts. It got worse. The Grove Hotel squat house, where I fell next, was where the other roofs usually fell onto, trickled down to, dumped everything over. Where the path goes to die. That slave ship, great and gilded barge with absolution for the few and roast leg of spam for the crew. Even the smell of the Grove was absolutely indescribable like coffee mixed with beer and piss and some old bacteriological experiment moldering in the dead person who tried to sneak it out up an unknown orifice. Who tried to sneak it out up an unknown orifice. It smelled like rain dripping through the roof. Down, down, down caved-in floors and gaping holes. I can't recall how the hell the place was even really administered. I was so fucked on hex when I even talked to anyone in the building, or so drunk I'd pass right out on your floor as soon as you opened the door. Or a cheery combination of any and all. No one knew who owned that de facto People's Republic. It was the place where you go when no one else will let you squat with them. I remember seeing yellow magazines stuffing the back fire escape window of one of the former disabled units on the second floor, back in the long corner where the stove was, where someone's pet gene-tailored frogs lurched up in black knots and cues from a pool of water on the floor. In those magazines, and some older ones too, they talked about the world of tomorrow, the year 2000. People back then were idiots. So nothing new. Wild beasts and bandits lay in wait down at that squad. No one within its walls is an innocent bystander. Hell, that whole quadrant of Nihomaki is a tent city now, and the alley's public outhouses. The bottom floors of the grove were fallen into complete decay when I was there. Rented out illegally for barter, for drugs and cheap labor and prostitution. Schizoid mutants shit in the corners. The basement was where they went to spawn and die, over a mile of the ancient Shanghai tunnels, sweeping down there in filth and asbestos and illegal warrens, 
Everything smelled like snipes and malt liquor. Back behind in the defiantly smoky front office, or what was once a front office, back where Fat Joey shook everybody down who somehow managed to find a dry place to sleep, like he owned the joint. Everybody in that squad came to Fat Joey because he had money and hired muscle. It was a lot like jail. He was also an idiot, just some pimp who'd been hustling out of there for years and paid off Lieutenant Mason. But the cops were starting to catch wise then. MPD had a new community liaison, some blonde, tanned asshole from Venice Beach who flew up here on his ass like a superhero to clean up Dodge. Those were always fun to watch. Captain Asshole wound up caught on vid by some reporter from the Merc, balls deep in a crack whore he'd placed in NIB upstairs detox two weeks prior to the date on the vid clip. We had the best laugh about that, pulling watch duty for smokes or beers, sitting on sawhorses behind the desk at that hotel, watching the whole thing on the public news, under the hateful eyes of the gossip folks like ragged inquisitors, sutured into hoverounds in wheelchairs, oxygen tanks and addictions, baying for blood. I never got in any serious trouble there, just kept to myself, and bribed the right people with the right chem. Oh, what webs we leave. Then something slipped. The routine skipped, repeated. I did my own cunning coming back behind a writing machine of any cobbled kind, behind a mic or traffic cone megaphone, howling loud. In the beer hole, I did more to get out of worse states than the one I'm in right now, with less than I currently possess. As hilarious as it might sound, the grove turned out to be the eye of my storm. Cold dawn now in my chicken house in the back cemetery lot here. One of the last fields left in this part of town that started out that way. Cold, cold, with that one little draft I can never quite fix niggling around my bare toes. But the floor is warm. Two layers of outdoor carpet and one of egg crate foam bounce under my feet, under sleeping bags stretched tight as hides and nailed down. The stove bellows heat over most of me. It gets greater later. In the silence that follows the sound of the wind combing the woods, I feel the sky poise atop my head, the rightness of things as they are. A petal falls somewhere. The moment simply is. I strain toward the idea, but it chases itself down further off than the horizon, winking out like a falling star miles up. The smoke thickens in my chicken house. There I am, in the tiny crystal mirror window at the front, reflected back, waking as the sky gets that weird glow like some other sun might rise. Portland is where everyone gets shipped to after they have their nervous breakdowns from the horrid police state of blah blah blah. Little Hong Kong. Little Saigon. Clackistan. Gladstone. Oregon City and the long scar that road is. 82nd Avenue. Chicken Town's main artery. They get relocated here, and they spend the whole rest of their lives stepping on each other. The Mafia, the Yakuza, the Tongs, the MPD. I used to think 82nd Avenue went all the way through my life, through my old neighborhood, out here to my new one that just became old again. Hell, I thought that road went all the way to Japan, past the edge of the known world, past the sea. I want to write about the wind in Chicken Town. Gusts of old bonfire smoke boiling down along the semi-habited banks of Johnson's Creek and the mossy old footbridges across parts of that raging torrent down through old Selwood and the canal breaking through on golf courses where bioengineered proto-gators soak up poison, mate, spawn, and die to this day. People live atop some of the old railroad trestles and stanchions on Johnson's Creek. 
in weird little one-room adobe bubbles with windows looking out over a view that's not there anymore. Many's the live spliced wireless power whip I see sticking up alongside ratty little river rock chimneys in those cozy one-grandma SROs where the chinks in the walls are stuffed with rags and pre-HDTV squawk out the madness of free local access VHF-UHF that no one ever watches anymore. No one but people so desperate for a place to live, for a way to shut out the roaring wind in the dark that any white noise will do while they wash their dishes in rain barrels and smile as they grub their own bitter pericardial fat over hot plates stirred by a war-ravaged hormonal experiment with a neighbor baby at every breast. The tunes that make me sing, from the pocket black and white I boosted out of Goodwill, just big enough to wireless up. Down at the street, the old music survives, propagates along ham channels, fiddied going round and round on the vinyl player on some well site or other. Any white noise will do. I switched the little antique portable TV over to the frequency modulation and amplitude modulation radio bands that satellite well radio killed just as shit dead as local TV. You can't even get a good global connection anywhere, except right outside, down at the Klakistan Center. I mean the Chicken Town Clap Center. I mean the bread line. Nothing is more depressing than the battered, suspended ceiling of that much-nicknamed old border church. That ceiling is the high-water mark where the money rolled back. There's a lot of bullshit that goes on at that church. A lot of puffery and drunkenness and little fights that are over almost as soon as they start. A lot of people sleep up in that suspended ceiling. Once or twice, one will fall through or leak through. At the fork of the corridor, right where they laid the first tide when they brought back the electric train, saddled high up between two ancient wooden transformer frames, an even older telephone pole no one ever wires anything to anymore stands like a great complicated crow's nest in the sky. The reception up there is great, too. And Midge McConaughey harvests eggs right out of either tiny window. I damn near put my foot through the wall of his eerie outhouse the last time I had to crash on its couch. One night only, Diz. I mean it this time. Have you ever had a midget kick your ass? Shut up. Everyone is so possessive of their space in Chicken Town. It's expensive around here. I was lucky to find a fluke that no one else claimed. I wanted for nothing. There are Christmas lights in my tiny window. I can stretch out and sleep. I can dream. Morning in my graveyard in Zebico, with the monsoon squall some months distant. This is the time of year when cats fight. Great frozen whirls of fur make circles through the frosty glass. All the life's gone from this neighborhood, all the way back to here. Outside and above me, hypersonic jets boom overhead, and the train horns on know something I don't. The jets boom a lot nowadays. No one ever tells us shit. There's no real news anymore. Not like the old people say there was before. Sometimes I see things that aren't planes. Who knows? When I make myself do it, I can literally remember every word. Of everything. Verbatim. That's why I'm a poet. Not all this media hype of street poet chic sheep shit that got me blabbed about in the weeklies back in the day, but never really got me any gigs or sold any words for pay. But sometimes words outlive their meanings. In my world, anyway. The one I rewrite in these dreams and forget when I wake, gasping, into terror that twists out of my hands each time I try to tell it straight. Like I could ever do anything straight. It made me a poet for spare change downtown with my poet-at-work sign and cut-down beer can. 
my silly Tyrolean hat with the feather in it turned upside down while I capered and shook a leg for two guys and a dog. I remember how easy I had it at the beer hole. How much all those new hacktors like to trade for everything and not use their real names. Their real IDs. The real chips they routinely dug out of the backs of their own necks with the points of illegal local forged push daggers. I was 17 years old and thought I owned the whole city. Every damn warehouse party where everybody's rolling so hard on everything imaginable that you get fucked up just for walking in. Wait. What happened to me? What happened to my mind? How could I have lived through any of this? Or ever put it out of my memory box of whips to flagellate myself on the eleventh floor of the beer hole while I spun my Plexan skylight web and swung my telescope over the dirty old town each night, drunk and singing and smoking cigars and falling out of my chair? I don't want to punch out before my time. I don't want to die of my birth. But all I know is how to be a criminal. There's no schools up here for anyone but Richie's, and nobody gets out. Not since the hex got big. My gift... The telepathy makes me nuts. Too nuts to hold down a straight job. I never learned to fully live in this world, which is something that I think has kept me from dying in it once or twice. It's the open mics for me, when it has to be something to earn cold cash. It's our little illusion of revolution and subversion downtown in tiled old cold rooms where it's 10% of the gate for you and the old men reading to wet-eyed Richie wives and each other all sound big and echoey and lost in the marble bubble left vacant for the write-off. I get enough from these underground reeds to live, and sometimes some of the old heads throw me odd jobs. It's a life. It's plenty. It isn't always, and not for two, but it evens out. I guess. I haven't written a new poem in too long, or read one out in public anywhere either. The mausoleums in this part of the graveyard are falling apart like gingerbread houses left out in the rain. I find peace sleeping in the graveyard down by the highway. Others have it worse. The future we once cursed is here already, I learned. Smoking the ditchweed, I grow wild and dry behind my little shed with the sage and mint and lavender and salmon berries. I smoke the ditch weed on cold nights, mornings such as this very one, and dance to the radio while I rewire together half a hundred of 82nd Avenue's broken, abandoned dreams for depreciated resale. I lost my altitude a long time before I spidered my little way down here to the greatest one-man homeless campsite ever made, at the edge of that slowly growing swamp that will suck the smoking roots of my chicken house in last of all when I'm long gone. I feel like Arthur Rimbaud, half-assed and barely born. Portland needs her bards yesterday. A shrewd poet can make a living anywhere, just passing on gossip and oral news from town to town. Anyway through it, it's great to return the backwater pocket economy of Chickentown, a neighborhood sketchy in my granddad's time, whoever the hell he was, back when they called it Felony Flats. Love it or leave it, Chickentown old and new has always had its own peculiar institutions behind the lines of the nominal city map. I admire that. Up here, the bridges and tunnels go a long way back, threading one under the other in a backyard express where the homeless might rent someone's actual yard, or just the space under the apple tree for pennies a night. Some of the Johnson Gutterpunk clan, or at least this local branch, live down along this floodline of Johnson's Creek, in the long blocks of squats on stilts and pontoons that sprang up down there ten or fifteen years ago all at once for some reason. Fucking maze down there. 
Every time I go looking for anybody in that mess, I have to climb through bedrooms and around washing machines and who knows what all. That camp's the one the ATV cops call Rotten Slag Springs, and the denizens call Redemption Standpipe Shantytown, out in the tall grass and every autumn leaf on the path painted in my soul with Van Gogh's wettest brush. I can't hang with those Johnsons. Too wild. But they grow good weed for nights spent at home, then with raindrops the size of crow eggs hammering away outside, and reggae hour on KHST. Hours later I sit bolt upright, dreaming about the first time I ever smoked, at public school when I was fifteen. That glorious first time that you can only get once and never repeat again. I sleep in this big chicken house someone abandoned, in the yard of an exploded foundation at the edge of the Holgate graveyard, whose old name I don't know. There are shake shingles on the roof, and a tiny stove in the wall that came ready to light. Someone loved his chickens. No one ever bitches about the gas. This place took about a summer to strip and seal and paint, and find the chem and means to do all those things. Snag all the wood, the nails, the rest. But that's what I mean. It's the neighborhood, man. There are miles upon miles, veritable swap meets of boxes along the roadsides, labeled free in letters big enough for an alien to read from space. I have hidden from Dr. Jeep here for two years. No one bothers me. The caretakers, one deaf-mute guy and one Samoan as big as a house and twice as strong, are tickled to death by this place. Ain't our land, brah, the Samoan guy, whose name is Bobby, tells me. I asked the boss man, and he said just don't even worry about it. Bobby and Joe come play poker with me, smoke my snipes and drink my liquor, sometimes smoke my weed if someone's harvesting and owes me. That's about twice a week, after they get done cutting the grass around the two or three stones in the whole joint that have something called perpetual care, then putting a flash cutter to the rest, and smoking cigarettes and having half-written, half-mimed hilarious conversations while that bot thing does its odd work. Bobby and Joe are from the Lentz housing projects. To the Fed, that makes them less than human. So I know I'm safe. Most of the time, those two guys are my only visitors. Other than the odd curious hobo, I feed them. Or nosy gangbanger kid who took the wrong turn off the freeway. I shoot them. Not to kill. Usually in the ass, with rock salt from a bang stick I made. I won't have guns in my chicken house. No place to store them well. Storage is at a bit of a premium, even after I made the place a lot bigger. I have an antique TV that can pick up the new public channels. An old scanner that can pick up most shortwave comm, and a lot of phone calls of various kinds. At night out here when the cold wind moans off every stone, and the sirens howl into the third world chill of this franken backwater on the make, I clack down the double bar inside the door, gloating over my secret hoard of bulk candy and good whiskey, old tech, old media, cobbled together projects that barely have a name. Nothing stays in here very long. I get it all out to Matryoshka's strays. Anonymously, of course. I wear a Santa hat when I go. I am as sober as an evangelical minister chaperoning a purity dance. And I have the time of my life with those kiddos. Those little rugrats are ravenous for new toys to take apart and put back together better. They call me Uncle Dizzy. They pretend they don't know who brings the toys but talk so much smack behind my back it feels like some weird little kid prison rules smack talk, man. Sometimes I think they're the smartest of us all. They use everything they get, or sell it. Doc doesn't have to know I gave them the parts for his new eyes. Goat, who made up his own name, is my star pupil, 
Kid's got a metabolism like me. He calls himself that because he eats everything no one else likes. Like Brussels sprouts and possum stew. Goat's brain functions much the same as his guts. Everything I teach him, he remembers. I gave him the parts for a pair of eyes when I dreamt the day my brother would come to them. I can't come out of hiding yet. I killed two of Jeep's snitches by accident. Their creds survived. Very little of them did. I burned them in the stove. The creds, not the pieces. I left those for my pet crows. One was called Mike Hauser. The other was Jim O'Brien. They looked like schmucks. I knew there were Jeeps because they were both spun up on the hex the way Doc used to get. When their half-assed little sniffer finally found an NIB pheromone signature behind all that old chicken shit, they came charging up to my front door like Grant took Richmond. I heard them, you see. I have that place bugged. Made the bugs myself. Depleted uranium battery. Directional mic for a 50-foot radius. That next guy to get this place had better grow some good dope. Heh. <laughs> what could I do, officer? You see right there in the vid clip? I had orange flags and caution tape for ten feet around the hole where I put that old pawn shop landmine. As common on 82nd as hex whores, flower vendors, and good foe. Even if dumb cop and dumber cop were flying too high on the dumb shit to figure out what they had just charged into, I'm quite sure that the regulation camera monitors that came with their headgear transmitted it back to Dr. Jeep just fine. I bet the old bastard shit a full belt of AK bullets when he saw two. With clear signage on the tape, no court in Portland would label the whole cock up anything but what the old drunks up on the Springwater call a Watergate, which I understand by context to mean a horribly botched jack or heist. Lucky me. I was down on the Springwater anyway that night, riding some guy's old pedal bike, laughing into the sunset until I had to go give it back. It took going home to realize that I'd been in any danger. When I was on that bike that night, I felt as free as the way that Yelena's orphans must see the world when they are safe. But we're all unsafe. I don't envy them. They can't be homed back to the parents that abandoned them, of course. And yet Yelena is breaking the law by not giving them back to either set of subhuman butchers, the original parents, or NIB. She's placed herself outside of society, like any sane person would do. Probably for the same reasons, if you believe my scanner that she resigned her NIB commission and tried to run over her boss with a staff vehicle. She got his legs. He got the best hove-magged wheelchair NIB could float. Yelena got a life of exile. Dr. Katzenbein, Jeep was her nickname for him when they were engaged, got, well, he's going to get his. I told you, I dreamed it. But now I want to wake up. I want to write about the wind in Chickentown cosmic whistle of silence that blasts apart the clouds so that the stars, light pollution or no, look so close, out on the perimeter of my city, out where the world ends. All you'll need is to reach up, to raise high a piece of wire with another piece of metal on the end, and draw down what you can, while you can. As I wake, the knowledge that I'm leaving settles into my bones. I ponder forward motion again, through galaxies of light and stone and weird gauge rail, back onto the mad and terrible road, howling and mendicant, but full of awe. The wild wail of 50s Ethiopian jazz cuts in on the tiny shortwave radio hanging on a thumbtack as the pirate station changes again. For a while longer, please. The music, the lights, the pipe I can't finish on the way. All these memories overlapping each other while I wonder which is real. 
not enough time to process before everything changes again, the way it does when you live raw, half outside and half in whatever cold hole in the wall you can grab. Yet when I truly open the extra part of my brain to those around me on the streetcar, the train, or in any crowd, I learn everything I need to know and don't feel a bit crippled or trapped. Socially immobile. Whatever you call it on your side of the river. I'm learning to do it for longer and longer each time. To get free. One day I'll get free enough to finish my destiny. Everything looks so good on paper, but takes so much work that most people just throw up their hands and settle instead for the worst, giving away all their power to the invader. Not me. Poets are kicked to the curb in the best of times, locked in the arms of innumerable hustles and gaffes and one-day gigs I have no tangible map for the next day, let alone week or year. What am I doing? What have I got to lose? What still scares me so much to shame me into staying? I tell myself I'm evolving, building up a body of work to recite for money on the street or at the open mics, but I'm running dry for new ideas and themes. The local lecture circuit has burned me to the ground. I'm tired of reading in public anymore, waiting my turn while all those old lags tell me my stuff was too... insert snooty adjective here. I've heard it all before. Now the stopper is dropped, and the damage is done. I thought I could wring some sort of permanency from the washed-out gray of this rainy dawn. But I've gotten soft. I got too used to staying in one place, and it messed up my thinking. It is like this. It is all like this. When you lose everything you think you have. The morning is like this. The breeze as good as a breakfast. The smells on the wind of roasting coffee and the big copper vats and the brewer's barns down the crumbled artery of 82nd Avenue that still drags at me like a stitch pulling in a wound. There's not one howling night that goes by when I don't wonder what lies behind all of this. Or who's listening sitting at some lonely window lit by the small fires of what we make with what we have, looking out at those same boiling skies, wondering if the dream is ever truly answered back, wondering when I will see my brother again, when the other dreams will come true and begin to play out to their bloody end. Sometimes words outlive their meanings. Times change. Cultures get older. Everyone moves on, even me. I look at the backpack in front of me, and the two tarot cards that must have fallen out of it the last time I reached over it to knock the ashes out of my pipe. One card is the Wheel of Fortune. The other is the Fool. I can't look at that damn backpack anymore. So I put it on. It's all I need. This way station and everything in it is for the next person. <sighs> Street code. Rules written a long time before I ever wrote a word. The chicken house door shuts with a squeak. I get to 82nd, then as far as the smell of the first Satsui card up by the NIB plasma bank, before I realize I didn't even bother to look back. Chancellor Gorkon, in Star Trek VI, famously called the future the undiscovered country. As Captain Spock points out, Gorkhan is here quoting from Shakespeare, specifically the most famous of all soliloquies, from Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1, where Hamlet contemplates suicide. I'm sure you know at least portions of it. To be or not to be. To sleep, perchance to dream. And of course, the section Gorkhan is referencing. 
who would Fardell's bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have to fly to others that we know not of. The reference is really somewhat oblique. Gorkhan is referencing, generally, the future. Shakespeare is very specifically contemplating death. Of course, as we the viewer know, Gorkhan's very near future, spoiler alert here, is his own death. Which, in my somewhat oblique way, brings me to my point. When we look at the future in fiction, which, when it comes down to it, is the only way we can look at the future, it is reasonably common to organize the worldview presented into two big categories, utopian fiction and dystopian fiction. The term utopia comes from the novel Utopia, written by Sir Thomas More in 1516 about the eponymous island's idealized republic. The term dystopia is a slightly more modern invention, the earliest known use dating to an 1868 speech to the British House of Commons by John Stuart Mill. So which do you believe in? The utopian future or the dystopian future? You know what I think? The future is now. We're living in the future. We are the future. So is it a utopia? Or is it a dystopia? And the answer is... It's both. Or it's neither. In the end, it comes down to your own perspective. Regardless of what's going on outside your door, life is what you make of it. And life is how you choose to live it. And life is, ultimately how you choose to view it as well. Admittedly, your immediate future is eminently predictable. I'm going to ask you for money. Nil Desperandum is entirely listener-sponsored. We rely on you to pay our authors. Please visit www.ndstories.com to leave a donation. And while you're there, also leave a comment on this or any of our other stories. Nil Desperandum is edited and published by Jim Phillips. Audio production in cooperation with the Bear Crawling Nation. Editor Hugh Morrison and executive producer Charles McFall. This audio is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License.